So it's from um, James chapter 1, starting at verse 19. Uh, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks in his face at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. All right, welcome everyone. Is this one making noise? Yes, hello, all right, very good. Um, so here we are back in James, and as we found last week, he's sort of pretty blunt and black and white, straight to the point. Um, so it's that practical tone that James is known for. Um, there's a risk of sort of glossing over it and seeing it as a, a bit of a list of do's and don'ts, which in a way it kind of is, but there's a bit more to it than that. Um, James is not writing this to give us a new theological teaching but to challenge our way of living. Uh, but before we jump into those verses that Abby just read for us, I'm just going to skip back a couple of verses to something that we read last week, but we didn't, we didn't focus on too much, um, because James isn't actually starting a new statement here. He's following on from what he's just said, and it's quite important that we notice that. In the King James Version, there's actually a, a wherefore at the start of that verse 19, making it a bit more obvious that it, it links up with what was coming before it. So coming before what we just read, it says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So every good, and gift, good gift is from God, the one who created the sun, the moon, the stars, the unchanging one. That same God has chosen to rescue his creation to do something new, starting with us. That we might be a kind of first fruits, and we looked at that a few weeks back, that idea of first fruits, you know, the first part of the harvest, you know, just the start of what God was going to be doing with us and through us. So that talk of being born again, when we say being born again, you know, being born is just the first part of life, and after that there's that expectation that there'll still be a lot more growing to happen. You don't remain a baby forever. And in a similar way, this book is kind of like a spiritual checkup. It's written to believers, and it contains a lot of practical advice and warnings about how we can continue to grow and be more Christ-like. So those first couple of verses there, he's reminding his audience who they are, that they're loved by God, and that they're important to God. And he's reminding them of their destiny, of what's to come, that God is currently making all things new, and he's starting with them. 
So he's showing them the big picture there, and he's doing that for a good reason, because the next part of his message, as we read, um, is going to involve some instruction and some rules and those things that we don't really like to hear. It's kind of like if you want to teach a kid to play an instrument. You have to inspire them, you know, take them to a concert or you know, show them some amazing musician who's doing something really, really talented with that instrument and what can be done with it. You don't start with, these are the rules, this is how you have to sit up straight, this is how you have to do that. You know, that's not going to inspire anyone to want to learn an instrument. Now, when I started playing bass here at church, um, I had Graham give me some tips, which was pretty good, um, and he's had that right combination. If you've ever heard Graham play bass, you'll know that he's amazingly talented. So there's the inspiration there. And he'd always show me clips of someone doing something amazing to get me inspired to want to keep playing and learn more. But I'd remember him showing me some things, um, and he'd play something on his guitar and then get me to copy him. And I'd play it exactly the same as him, but he'd say, Oi, no, not like that, you know, that's the wrong finger. And there's this rule when you're playing bass or guitar, it's called one finger per fret. So as you can see in the picture, basically you're meant to go one, two, three, four. But me, I'm kind of lazy, and I would go one, two, three, and then I'd slide my third finger up to be the fourth. Because when you're starting out, your little finger's weak. And for me, that was much easier. And Graham would always call me up on it, say, you know, use your little finger. And, and he didn't really care about what finger I used. It sounded the same. But he knew that, that that method would develop me into a better bass player in the long run. It's one of those rules in the method that would turn me into a, yeah, give, get, let me play to my full potential. So when I'm stuck on a song that I really hate, it's, that rule isn't popping into my head. I'm not hearing Graham say, use the right finger. That's not going to make me keep going. But it's when I hear something inspirational that reminds me, that's why I'm doing it, when my fingers are sore and I'm frustrated. I'm not doing it for the rules. I'm doing it for the big picture, the end goal. And that's what James is doing here when he's reminding us of that big picture and what God is doing through us. Does that make sense? So it's important to think, what is our goal? You know, what's the point of all this? You know, is it to do what we're told so that we go to heaven when we die? No. James is reminding us that the point of all this is that we are being made new. We are to be conformed to his likeness, to be as we were intended to be. And that doesn't happen overnight. The Christian's goal is not to get through this life with as little trouble and as little challenges as possible, and then one day die and escape this world. If our goal is spiritual maturity or resilience, then these are not so much rules as in do this or else, but more like an instruction manual or a training document. So with that in mind, there's a slightly different spin on what we read next. You know, God, uh, James has reminded his readers about the big picture, who they are and what God is doing with renewing them, that they are the first fruits of his renewed creation and God has begun something in them. So now when we read that part of James, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So now when we read this, notice that James isn't saying you have to do this because I said so. He's not saying do this because God wants you to be quiet, and he's not saying you know, it's easier to control you all if you don't get angry. He's saying this because of the effects that it will have. You know, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This is the method to the goal. He's saying do this because it does not produce the righteousness God desires. That is the goal. 
Don't be quick to anger. That's the rule and the method in order to obtain righteousness. So can you see how that focus is important? You know, the goal, that's, that's also the motivation. You know, when times get tough and we're tired and tempted, it's not the rules that keep us going. It's not that voice in our head that says, don't get angry. That's, that's not going to encourage us in those times. It's that vision, the beauty of that end goal, that we are being transformed, that one day we will be like Jesus. So yeah, again, back to that music example. When my fingers are sore, it's not Graham yelling the rules and the techniques at me. That's, that's not going to keep me playing. It's that vision of what, what I can do if I stick to with it. You see what I'm getting at? I'm glad. All right, so let's have a bit more of a deep look in the detail of what he's saying. Um, so everyone should be, we've got two, quicks, uh, two slows and one quick. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Has anyone ever spoken too quickly and regretted it? Yep. Doesn't feel good, does it? You, you always try and take it back and it's too late for that. But has anyone ever listened too quickly and regretted it? Doesn't really happen, right? It's pretty solid advice and there's not really any arguing with it. Um, and, and again, this is not a legalistic command. Some people naturally talk less. Uh, believe it or not, I'm usually one of those people. Um, or some people talk slower than others, and, and that's not what he's getting at. It's not about the speed or the number of words. It's, it's a self-assessment to, to check, to allow God to be in control of your words and to check what you're saying. And there are so many similarities in this to the Sermon of the Mount in the book of James. We'll see a few more as we go through the series. And you can see why. He's, he's sort of anticipating that legalistic response that always seems to happen. You know, people are given their rules, told them, tell them, do this or don't do that. And then people tick the boxes to the bare minimum and sort of miss the point and find out ways to get around it. So James isn't telling us to just tick those boxes. He goes on to tell us why, which is the more important bit, to develop that righteousness that God desires. You could be a peaceful mute and still not produce the righteousness that God desires. That's not what he's getting at. I love this bit. This is a Greek word study. It's just probably going to be the most useless word study you've ever done. That word everyone in Greek means all, any, every, the whole, or everyone. It's pretty shocking, right? Um, so James is being very black and white here. When he says everyone should be slow to speak, slow to become angry, he actually means everyone. There's no hidden meaning. It's very obvious. Um, and you're, you're probably not surprised by that definition. It's not that strange that you know we'd read something and it means what it says. But for the culture of that time, it actually was a bit revolutionary. Um, in the ancient world, there was that relationship between power and status and the words you used. What I mean is like the, the rulers and officials assumed the right to talk, talk lots and to interrupt and you know, they were the ones who were right. The rulers had more authority than the peasants or the slaves. The men would interrupt the women. So in conversation, basically you give way to whoever's more important than you and, and they're right. No arguing. And maybe things aren't that different in some situations today. Um, but this is another example of a practical teaching that when followed really helped to shape the early church, breaking down the barrier of class, wealth, you know, bringing everyone to an equal platform. And that's something that only happens when individual people take that on board and live it out. This is an instruction to the people on an individual level, but it's not an accident that it's not an accidental byproduct that the result of this is better relationships or more inclusive communities. He goes on to say, do not merely listen to the word and so deceives yourselves. Do what it says. 
So that's a good summary of most of the book of James, really. Listen and obey is a big part of what he's getting at. The focus of the book seems to be encouraging Christians to grow in their faith. It's his expectation of what a mature believer looks like. He's expecting growth and to see the fruit of their faith. That word, deceive yourselves. If you're deceived, you don't know it. If they were aware of it, James would have called them rebellious or disobedient, but he says deceived. It's a self-deception. Thinking that because you know a lot, that you're living right. Um, Similar in Corinthians where it warns that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Knowledge alone and hearing, isn't that's not going to cut it. And this is what it's so important is about being in a community and fellowship with other believers. You know, we need people to challenge us, to disagree, to point out our deception, the things that we can't see ourselves. We can know a lot from learning and studying by ourselves, and, and that's a good thing to do. But he's saying if that's all you've got, if it's just knowledge without action, then we've got a huge problem. And the tone here is possibly more like a, like a yelling or a desperate, you know, are you serious, guys? Come on. You're being deceived. Don't be blind. It's like an intense pleading. It's, it's hard to get when you're writing a letter, but you think of the material that he's writing about here. It's, it's serious stuff that he's talking about. So the goal of his letter, or any sermon really, is not that everyone in the audience would feel beaten up and you know, say, thanks, James. I know I'm a crappy person. And I know I'm failing at this. The goal is that they would respond to the message and that their lives would be changed. That's what he's hoping for here. In Luke 18, when Jesus was speaking to a rich man, it seemed like a good conversation. You know, the guy was open and questioning, and he knew a lot. But when pressed on the issue of greed and possessions, it says that when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So he had heard the word, and he understood it, but there was no action or response. And, and that part ends just like that, sort of ambiguous and awkward and cold and sort of that heavy ending where you don't quite know what happens. Uh, but the very next chapter, Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and that was quite a different conversation that responds in, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So that, that conversation there ends quite differently. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. This time we see the response to the message, and that response was action, and it was a changed life. And again, it's not that he was saved by his actions, but his actions were an indication of what he believed, of where he placed his faith. So I'm going to give you a really bad example of this, and it's just an illustration, so no one freak out. But if I was to tell you that there was a bomb in this room, and I said it's going to go off in 30 seconds. And then I kind of paused for a bit and talked really slow. Sort of waved at Andrew at the back there. How's it going? Made a joke. You'd think, Michael doesn't actually believe there's a bomb in here, does he? You know, like my actions are not, you know, I'd be yelling at you, I'd be hurting you out the door if I actually believed that. An example of, a bad example, sorry, of my actions not actually, they're giving away what I truly believe. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do.
So here he's comparing the word of God to a mirror and two different ways of using it. You, know, you can glance at it. You don't need to read or hear, hear the word for long before you start seeing yourself in it, seeing your sin, seeing your need for repentance. If I was to see my true reflection, like if I look in a mirror and see that I've got a smudge on my face, for me it's probably chocolate. If I see that and say, oh, got a bit of chocolate there, and then continue on my way and don't do anything about it, I haven't made very good use of that mirror, have I? The mirror is going to tell me that there's something wrong, but it's not going to wipe it off for me. That second explanation of the mirror up here, the one who looks intently into the perfect law, you know, intently, with intent, purposeful, it's like one stooping down to, to inspect something, to figure it out. See how it works. The one who does that and continues in it will be blessed in what they do. You know, the second, those who are not just hearers but do what they have heard, they are said to be blessed in what they do. And it says not blessed for it, but blessed in it. The blessing is in the act of obedience. Thinking back to what James said about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, if we were going to be doers of that teaching, what sort of blessings would we expect to see? Anyone? If you went away this next week and you were slow to become angry, quick to listen, slow to speak with people around you, what sort of blessings would you be expecting? Would you expect to come home and find a pile of gold in your driveway? No? <laughs> that would be awesome. But what we'd expect to see would be stronger relationships, right? Better relationships with the people around us, you know? And that's a, that's a blessing in the act of what we do, not, you know, not something unrelated. We're not getting piled on blessings because of this thing we've done. It's in that thing that we're doing. You see what I mean? So when you hear the rules like that, it's, it's not like a arbitrary do this and I'll give you this. It's do this to get, you know, it's part of the journey. It's not God sitting in the sky saying, if you follow this random list of rules, then I will intervene in your life and throw some rewards at you. And I'm not saying that God doesn't intervene or reward, but what I mean is God saying, I created you. This is the instruction manual you should follow to live as you were designed. Just like an instruction manual for anything. You know, your car says don't drive with low tyre pressure and make sure you put diesel in it, not petrol. I shouldn't give car examples. I don't really know them very well. But, but you get it, right? You can't expect to ignore those rules and your car to perform how it should. You've got to do what the manual tells you to do. Charles Spurgeon, he's got some awesome writing on this, which I've found really encouraging. On this, his commentary on this passage, he says, about those who are hearers and not doers, he says, they have heard a sermon on repentance, but they have not repented. They have heard the gospel cry, believe, but they have not believed. They know that he who believes purges himself from his old sins, but they have had no purging, but abide as they once were. And he continues a bit later on, to those who are content with hearing and not doing and thinking that that's enough, that's enough to save them, he goes on. If I was to address those, I would say to them, that Michael is bad at PowerPoints. Um, if I was to address those, let me say to them, it is clear that you are and must be unblessed. The hearing of a feast will not fill you. The hearing of a brook will not quench your thirst. The information that there is gold in the Bank of England will not enrich you. You need cash in your own pocket. The knowledge that there is a shelter from the storm will not save the ship from the tempest. 
the information that there is a cure for a disease will not make the sick man whole. I should like to feed you for a month on your theory. I would rattle plates in your ears and see whether you would be fed. I would not accommodate you with a bed at night. Why should I? I would preach you a discourse on the benefit of sleep. Nor need I give you a room to occupy. I would read you an eloquent dissertation upon domestic architecture and show you what a house should be. You would very soon quit my door and call me inhospitable if I gave you music instead of meat. And yet you deceive yourselves with the notion that merely hearing about Jesus and his great salvation has made you better men. When you hear it like that, it's pretty hard to argue the logic of it, right? We don't, we don't think that the hearing without the action is going to cut it for pretty much anything else. So the main idea that I'm hearing in the book of James is that, that as a Christian, I must listen to the word and do what it says. I must obey. So, so when it says to forgive others, it means that I should forgive them, not just agree that that sounds like a good teaching. And when it says that I should love my wife, it means that I should live that out and not just be an egg to her all the time and sort of say, I, I don't tell her that, but she knows it. I told her that ages ago that one time, you know. When it says to love my enemies, it probably means that I should do that too, not just shrug it off and say, in a perfect world, that'd be good. But So it's a very easy to understand message, but it's not so easy to do. In Philippians 2, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus did this, the, the perfect human, the one that we meant to model our lives on. He humbled himself and took on the nature of a servant and became obedient. Obedience is one of those words that we don't really like. Um, but like what Sarah mentioned a couple of weeks back about serving and the foot washing Lord, you know, when Jesus said to go and do likewise, to humble yourselves and serve each other, it's that same idea, you know, be obedient and serve others. So on a, an individual level, no one really likes this. You know, we don't like doing, doing what we're told or being told to do anything. We want freedom, we want options. But in the bigger picture, we, we need it. And actually, when it doesn't happen, things fall apart really quickly. Parents tell their kids to be obedient. Teachers tell that to kids in class. Employers tell that to employees. We, we understand that. And we get that when kids don't listen and obey, it's not good. And a disruptive kid in class not doing what they're told, or employees not doing what they're hired to do, it, it doesn't work. It's chaos. It's a really simple message and you know, easy to understand. We can't argue with the message but it is very difficult to follow. He goes on to say, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. James is saying, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about the way you guys talk to each other. I'm not even sure that you're really Christians. You know, your faith doesn't seem to have changed you. Our day-to-day -day speaking you know, to your spouse, your children, work colleagues, how we behave is a reflection of what we believe. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So again, the idea is not to treat that like a checklist and say, yeah, I sponsor a child and look after the widow down the street. 
so I'm okay. So the idea is not to, to tick boxes, you know, even though I run a dodgy business and do all these other bad things on the side. It's an example of loving like Christ loved us. Um, Sarah spoke last, uh, a few weeks back, that serving and washing the feet of those lower than you, giving with no expectation of repayment, you know. You're not going to get anything back from a widow or an orphan. They've got nothing to give back to you. And that ticking boxes, you know, the, the hypocritical religious leaders outwardly appearing holy but inwardly corrupt, the greedy, oppressive, that, that's one of the biggest issues throughout the entire Bible. All throughout ancient Israel, um, the Jewish leadership at the time of Jesus, and according to James here, it's a problem that carried through to the early church. And I think it's still probably one of the biggest problems in the church today. The spread of the early church was largely due to the reputation of the early Christians. The outside world knew them as those strange people that would pick up abandoned babies and nurse them, that would set up soup kitchens and feed people who don't give them anything in return. That's a really bad business model. You, people, you don't do that. The ones who shared their food and made sure the widows didn't starve, the ones who started hospitals, schools, the ones who buried strangers when no one's bothering to give them a proper burial. They're breaking through those boundaries of serving and, and serving with no expectation. And there's that no discrimination between the rich and poor. And that's a pretty cool reputation. Um, and I know church history isn't that simple and there's been a lot of horrible things done too. But what I'm getting at is that our reputation comes from our actions, from what we do. And I'm not saying that we'll be perfect and that we won't continue to screw up. But James is expecting to see growth in us and we should expect that too. You know, I think if we hired a builder who had 30 years experience and at the end of the project, the roof leaked and the door doesn't close and the floor's not level, you'd be wondering what he's been up to for 30 years, wouldn't you? you know, maybe if it's his first job, it might be understandable. But, but we don't expect that in a career, you know? The amount of time someone's been in a job, you expect that to reflect in their, their understanding, their knowledge, their skills. You expect them to have more experience from that length of time and to have something to show for it. So I'm not really someone who cares too much about reputation. Like, I care about what my friends and family think, but I'm not too worried about strangers. But I was reflecting on that, and actually that's not a very good attitude. Um, as a Christian, I often forget that my actions don't just affect what people think of me, but they also affect what people think about God. And I, and I hear it all the time, people who don't want anything to do with God because of something a Christian or the church did or some scandal that's going on. You know, our actions do, do reflect what people think about God. And I know, again, there's the risk of sounding like I'm saying we need to earn our salvation, and I'm definitely not saying that. But I'm emphasizing 